in Latvia, for example, around 95% of discrepancies identified in their public beneficial ownership register, that comes from journalists and NGOs. It's not government finding out that the data is wrong. It's everybody else telling them that that's the case. Dear listeners of The Laundry, in today's episode, we're deep diving into the recent ruling from the Court Justice of the European Union on the public's access to UBO registers. And to help us guide us through the topic is Tom Townsend, who is the Executive Director at Open Ownership, an NGO who supports 30 governments globally to implement beneficial ownership reform. Welcome, Tom. Well, uh, thank you. Um, good morning. Good morning. Let's just dig right in. What is this recent ruling from the Court Justice of the European Union? So on the 22nd of November 2022, uh, the European Court of Justice ruled that public access, general public access to beneficial ownership information in the European Union was invalid. Um, practically speaking, what that means is that the provisions in the fifth anti-money laundering directive, which came into force in 2018, which allow for public access, it's that bit that's invalid. So in effect, what the court is saying is that the situation in terms of who can access this data reverts back to the situation we had under the fourth anti-money laundering directive, which basically says that you can have access to it if you have legitimate interest. Um, and that has to be applied for, or in reality was applied for under the fourth anti-money laundering directive on a case-by-case -case basis by journalists and civil society. So yeah, we this court ruling really winds the clock back to the situation we had in the mid-2010s with respect to wider access to beneficial ownership information. And there's been a lot of controversy around this ruling. And why why, why is that? The fifth anti-money laundering directive when it passed in 2018 was a massive win for transparency campaigners and those people that for a very long time had said it, it is essential that there is widespread access to this information to help fight money laundering, but more broadly to help globally the ability to investigate who owns companies and begin to unravel webs of corruption and wrongdoing within the global economy. So in 2018, we celebrated hard when, when this got passed in the fifth anti-money laundering directive. Um, so four or so years later, when, when we wind the clock back to a situation under the fourth anti-money laundering directive, I think rightly people are seeing this as a, as a real blow towards our ability collectively um, to detect and discover uh, wrongdoing um, and um, really understand how our global economy functions. And I think it's particularly controversial right now because this data has been so useful uh, since February of 2022 after the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, to understand where wealth's at, particularly relating to Russian nationals and, and oligarchs and kleptocrats that have been buying up property and boats uh, and moving their money around the world. So I think at this time, seven or eight, nine months after the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, when this public access to this information has been so vital to detect those people operating within the European economy and more broadly, to, to take away access to that right now feels like the worst possible time to do it. Um, and I think it's an interesting kind of um, intellectual exercise to think back to late February, March of 2022, as governments around the world were very quickly trying to figure out uh, 
sanctioning people and make, making sure that they could do that quickly before they could move their assets to a different jurisdiction to think back to that time and wonder how, how effective that would have been or how much less effective that would have been in a context where journalists and civil society couldn't access that data. And let me give you a quick example of, of why that's useful. In uh, Latvia, for example, around 95% of discrepancies identified in their public beneficial ownership register that comes from journalists and NGOs. It's not government finding out that the data is wrong. It's everybody else telling them that that's the case. So when we remove that public access, we are going to see quality of data and information on those registers go down because civil society and journalists are doing the work of verifying, fact-checking, uh, of spotting instances where there are discrepancies within these public registers. So the overall impact of this is going to be a less effective press it's going to be a less effective civil society. And I think if we take the, the Latvia case, we're also going to see less high quality data. Mm. In many ways, it's really hard when you put it like that, it's really hard to understand why um, they have ruled as they, as they have. But we know that EU is um, fighting a lot for privacy and setting the precedent for that um, globally in many ways. Is this is can this ruling be seen as where the EU is putting uh, privacy over AML and financial financial crime? Um, that's a sort of matter of an opinion and how one sees the world. I think you can, I think you can view this judgment as a very specific and narrow reading of of, of law and GDPR. And what the judgment is saying is that strictly speaking, this is the language of the judgment, strictly speaking, it is not necessary for there to be general public access to tackle money laundering and counter-terrorist financing. Now, there's quite a lot of um, legitimacy in that view. If you had a perfectly effective law enforcement, if you had all around member states, really well-funded financial intelligence units who were just fantastic at their jobs then yeah, strictly speaking, you probably wouldn't need everybody else to be involved. Unfortunately, that isn't the case. And the EU releases reports periodically, quite regularly actually, saying that Europe is losing the fight against money laundering. So if we don't live in that perfect world, then strictly speaking, we do need general public access because that is supporting the fight against money laundering and countering terrorist financing. But in a very narrow uh, kind of abstract legal view, sure, I don't think, strictly speaking, we, we do need that access. So it feels a little bit like the ruling is somewhat divorced from the current reality of the fight against money laundering within the European context and exists in a sort of quite narrow and legalistic view of what uh, what it means to, to to give public access and whether or not it is, strictly speaking, necessary. And I think the other part of all of this is the proportionality test that the court talks about. So what the court is saying is that on balance, does, does the fight against money laundering, is that more important ultimately than giving public access to all of this? Is it proportionate to give general public access to fight money laundering? And in general, they, they rule that on the balance of all of that, no, it isn't. And you get the sense from reading the judgment, and we sort of heard this in the background, that Perhaps the court wasn't completely uniform in its view. I don't think all of the justices may have agreed. So we've got this pretty pretty narrow reading of things. 
Um, as to whether or not the court is is saying that privacy is more important than fighting money laundering, I sort of I don't think it sort of thinks like that. Mm-hmm. Really. I don't think that's the sort of that that's not really the the kind of um, the rules of the road when it comes to making these judgments. I think what it is saying is that um, you can fight money laundering without having public access, and that's true. Of course, you can. Um, and that general, on balance, as it stands right now, the invasion of privacy um, or the um, the kind of intervention in people's private lives proportionally just isn't worth it to to, to fight money laundering. And I think I think that's a that's a view in some ways that is perfectly legitimate for for people to have. You know, is is this ultimately worth it? Is this a higher priority to protect privacy and protect the the concept of privacy within the EU? Is that more important than fighting money laundering? And I guess it sort of depends. It depends which side of the fence that you 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 sit on. And I think also it depends a little bit. Um, as to your level of knowledge about how bad the money laundering problem is. Um, and I think what's interesting about the judgment is that it doesn't really give a huge amount of evidence as to, as to why it's disproportionate or, or, or why um, or if indeed money laundering is a particularly bad problem and that proportionally it's not worth giving public access to fight it. There's not really a discussion of the evidence. Um, and that's what I find a little bit strange about it. It's just this argument that, look, we've looked at it. We don't think it's proportionate. Well, show us your working. Tell us why that's the case. Tell us how big the problem is. Tell us how big the invasion of privacy is and, and sort of show us, your, show us your working. Show us the equation by which you've got to that, that judgment. But of course, we don't see that in the judgment. It's not there. So I guess answering your question, which has taken me a rather long time. <laughs> that's okay. That's um, okay. It's really hard to know why the courts reach this judgment because it doesn't really tell us. No. I think on the other side, again, if we take the privacy um, privacy view and see, okay, what impact has it had in people's life then since uh, the AML5 directive where it, the public did had, have access to this? I know that you have a few examples from 2016 or... Uh, in the Netherlands, where we were told about a grim future world where, where all these bad things would happen if UBOs and beneficial ownership become public, but it hasn't really manifested itself, has it? Not that we're aware of, and I'm I'm fairly sure if these um, if these sort of really bad impacts had had happened, we would have been the first to find out. There was a, a, a case brought in the Netherlands court by a group called Privacy First, and the harms that they listed included. Um, a child being called names in the schoolyard because their peers at school apparently had gone onto the beneficial ownership register and discovered that their parents had money, um, which is kind of remarkable for for a bunch of kind of young high school kids, but, you know, good for them. Um, and the other example that we found was, or, or was cited in this case of a harm, of was of someone discovering there was a, a local person who was the owner of a, of a relatively minor football club. Uh, and some fans went and knocked on that person's door and demanded that this person invest more money in their local football club. So those are the two examples of harm that have come from public access, at least in the in the context of the Netherlands, where the data was never that public. You had to go and pay for it, and it was hard to search and all the rest of it. And um, so, um, again, a- applaud those um, very um, industrious young people who... Um, in, in their break times were going and looking at the beneficial ownership register. None of this really, really stacks up. And I think the other aspect of all of this specifics aside, the idea that being listed in a beneficial ownership will be the first anyone has heard that you have money um, 
it's a little bit hard to believe. Um, there are other outward signs that you have money, like the house that you live in, or the car that you drive, or the watch that you wear, quite clearly. So the idea that before uh, the beneficial ownership information was available, people had no idea uh, that you had wealth and power, um, that kind of stretches credulity. That doesn't seem entirely plausible. So there haven't been a huge number of cases of documented harm. Um, if we look back to um, the kind of early days of this discussion, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, um, the, the, the challenge that was raised globally was that um, as soon as this information is, is online, uh, myself and my family are going to be exposed to the risk of kidnap and harm as people trying to extract our wealth from us. And actually, the foundation of this case that was brought in the lower courts in Luxembourg, it was exactly Yeah, it was someone claiming that they would be kidnapped if their ownership uh, information came out. Yeah, and, and they would claim that the, the risk of that kidnap existed where they operated their businesses, which, as far as I'm aware, was largely in East Africa, I think. Um, now, again, I think there are some countries in the world where that risk of, of kidnap exists quite clearly. But again, I'm not sure that it's, you know, the risk of kidnap has existed prior to public beneficial ownership information because someone sees the car that you're driving or they simply know that you are a wealthy person. Um, so the idea that this information being in the public domain is, is the tipping point from no risk to risk, again, practically just sort of stretches the imagination uh, beyond the point which it's sensible, I think. But yeah, we those are the harms that have been catalogued so far, at least were catalogued enough to be put in a, uh, a court case that was brought in the Netherlands. Um, we have heard of no, no others. Yeah. And... Uh... There was a conference in Brussels uh, a mm -hmm. couple of weeks back, which was, it had been planned for a long time, but it coincided with being at the exact same week as this ruling happened. And you were there, isn't that correct? One of my colleagues was yeah, there. Yeah, one of your actually. colleagues were there. The but case. what were some of the highlights and the key takeaways from those days for those who weren't there? I think the two things that are probably worth mentioning from that was, was, was one, the sort of utter dismay that exists within you know, the community that's been working on this. Um, and bear in mind, this, this conference came about at the end of a European Union funded project um, to look at the benefit and impact of public registers. So this was the, the, the commission itself funding work by civil society and academics to figure out and understand the positive benefits of, of public information. I think a couple of things came out of this for us. I think, number one, um, there were clear statements from a couple of member states, uh, um, Estonia, Latvia being two of them, that they were going to continue to publish this information and that, that as they understood it, and we have been making this argument and many others have for years, that the, the benefits of public access to this information go far beyond that purpose of fighting money laundering and countering terrorist financing. It has an economic and social good. Um, so a sort of restatement of some of those facts. Um, and I think also from the relevant um, European uh, Commission officials there, there was, there was a general call for, for calm. We need to figure out what the Commission thinks. We need, you know, they're commissioning their, their legal opinion. Um, and we'll find a way through this. Um, and we'll find a way through this even within the narrow constraints of going back to a situation we had under the fourth anti-money laundering directive, which is uh, access for legitimate interests. So, yeah, a, a really interesting restatement of kind of first principles from some member states about why they publish this information and the benefit that they see. So that point around 95% of discrepancies being spotted by people outside of government was, was sort of aired during that conference. 
um, and yeah, a kind of a plea from the commission just to everyone just to take a moment. You know, the judgment has just landed. Everyone is feeling extremely either very happy about this or very, very sad about this. Um, we now need to work out the process going forward. That's a perfectly reasonable uh, thing for the commission to say. And, you know, they will take their time and they will do their homework. The problem with this, however, is that into that lack of clarity about what all of this means flows a lot of bad actors. It also means we have a lot of confusion globally. So one of the things that I find challenging about this whole situation, particularly from the perspective of the commission, is it's not really recognizing its global leadership role when it comes to issues around transparency of beneficial ownership. Where, where the EU goes, others follow. And we certainly saw that in terms of how data protection legislation has been developed around the world. It's, a lot of it is sort of grounded in GDPR and, 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 and that really made the weather, um, as I see it, around the world. So the EU has a leadership role on this issue. Countries around the world are looking at this and there's um, places far, far geographically away from the EU where... Those forces, those businesses that have hated the idea that their particular country is going to start publishing this information are now calling up politicians, they're calling up company registry authorities, and they're saying, well, the EU has decided that the publication of this information is an infringement on my human rights. How on earth can you, my government, go ahead and start publishing this? The EU says it's an infringement on my human rights. And if the EU says that, then of course, that's an important thing and we need to take account of it. So... We really need to see the Commission sort of step into this void now and be extremely clear about what they're going to do about it, what the principles underpinning public access should be, and where there's a legitimate interest regime imposed, that that works really effectively, and that legitimate interest really is respected. I think the challenge for a lot of people that have been working in this space for a long time is that under the fourth anti-money laundering directive, where we had this legitimate interest access principle practically it just didn't work you know you would you would ask for something you'd never hear back it would take weeks it would take months you may never get it who has legitimate interest who doesn't well that varies from member state to member state so there's a there's a sort of uniformity of implementation problem there so no one really wants to go back to that world um and of course what's really important to note is that the commission uh, gave evidence at the hearing at the european court on all of this and the court was asking them, well, why did you not just create or a legitimate interest test? Why did you not continue with the legitimate interest um, approach that you had under the fourth anti-money laundering directive? And the commission's response was, well, it was unworkable. We tried to figure out what legitimate interest was. It's very hard to define in law. Who is a journalist? Who is mm. a civil society organization? These things aren't really rightly, I think, defined in the European context. So the commission says, well, it was unworkable. So we go with general interest, public access, because we can't figure out how to do legitimate interest well. Um, and the court's response is kind of like, just because it's hard doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And I think the commission is not saying it's too hard, we didn't bother. They're saying it's impossible to make that work. So the court really has, has thrown the ball back into their side of the court and said, can you now make something that you think is unworkable work? And Forgive me, but if it was unworkable, um, you know, if it was unworkable a year ago or four years ago, I, I'm not sure that it is going to be workable in a way that satisfies people now. But we shall see. A lot of people now then have their faith in the AML 6 directive that it will come and uh, 
overrule all of this and we'll go back to the to you know before this ruling what do you think uh, what do you think will happen if you look uh, into the AML6 future uh, yeah i i don't see how the sixth anti money laundering directive could overrule this i, I don't think there is a workaround um, that that they can come up with i think you know rightly you know we live in europe we respect the rule of law this is europe's highest court we respect their judgments. We have to. That's the whole basis of anything that we live on. There's, there's no point attacking the court per se, I don't think. So I don't think the sixth anti-money laundering directive is going to going to sort of turn the clock back on this judgment. I think it's going to have to think very hard or the commission is going to have to think very hard about how to create a sixth anti-money laundering directive where legitimate interest works. Um and I think there's also some really interesting things that they can do around publishing certain aspects of this information freely. There is a world, and from our purposes, I mean, we we run one of the, the biggest repositories of open data on beneficial ownership in the world. We aggregate everything that's available and we publish it and we publish it as structured data. We have a, a standard, a beneficial ownership data standard, which 10 or so governments are implementing. Um, and that splits beneficial ownership up into into three, three parts, three statements, uh, a person statement, an entity statement, and an ownership and control statement. It's the person statement that's problematic, I guess, with respect to this judgment, because that's personally identifiable information about the beneficial owner. The entity statement, the statement about the company, structured information on a business, and structured information on ownership and control, that doesn't, in my view, contain personally identifiable information. So there's a world in which you can still see governments publishing the entity and ownership and control statement is structured data. So we can still build those big, complicated corporate network diagrams showing which companies related to who, which which beneficial owner, and we can just give them a unique ID and not release the name, who's at the top of that tree. That data is still useful from an investigations perspective because you're trying to see those interlinkages between companies, relative percentages of ownership and control, and build up your understanding of the mm. world. So. We need to see the commission in the sixth anti-money laundering directive think very creatively around what they're going to be asking member states to publish. Because um, when you stop and think about it, this there's a lot of value in non-personally identifiable information and beneficial ownership, which I want to see be made public and be made public in a structured machine readable way. And potentially providing that kind of information allows people to go and seek legitimate interest access with with evidence to say we've looking at this web of companies we know that it all terminates in these two two individuals i now this is my legitimate interest to go and see reveal the names behind it so we just need to see them bring the right people around the table have a very rapid and um broad-based conversation with everybody that has a stake in all of this um and let's come together and think this through that's that's the perfect outcome in all of this. What I fear will happen is a very sluggish process that's kind of ignoring the role and voice of civil society and journalists in all of this and, and, and is coming from a place of fear and lack of confidence about what to publish rather than a positive forward look as to what, what could be done. Um, I've always seen um, data protection legislation as a way of... Um, enabling you to do things rather than you stopping you from doing everything because mm. you know what it gives you is a very True. clear set of guardrails let's let's go let's go at amld6 from that perspective rather than one of fear and 
and hesitancy. What other things could help contribute to rewinding the clock on this? In your opinion, um, like what could happen in a, you know, the best scenario that we would go back now to before the ruling? Um, I think there's a few things. I, I think, well, I, I do think that we need to think creatively around what can still be published and publishing really effective structured data. That can be really, really helpful. I think it's going to be really important for the private sector to stand up businesses like yours, the banks and others who we know get significant benefit from general public access to this data. I think they need to step up now and 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 talk about that, uh, defend that position, describe why it is of value to them. I think we also uh, need to see um, foreign law enforcement and investigators from outside of the EU step up and explain why public access is not just an issue that affects people within the geographic boundaries of the European Union. Lots of money that is stolen around the world ends up in EU member states. It is profoundly valuable for foreign investigators, financial intelligence units to keep having access to this data. So, so hearing those voices as well, step up and say, look, we need this. And general public access was the way that we were able to do our jobs um, and stop money leaving our jurisdictions, I think is really, really important. Um, and I think generally speaking too, we need to understand better what the evidence base was and the evidence of impact when it comes to day-to-day operations for companies who can't necessarily afford uh, the latest and greatest KYC platform or afford to appoint a company to go out and do due diligence on their counterparties. Um, it was for those businesses that this offered general public access, offered them really, really helpful information. So I think it's a it's a collection of all of those voices um, kind of being heard and being raised up. I don't think we're going to wind the clock back to a world in which this never happened. I, I just don't think that's possible. Uh, the court has ruled. But if we're going to step, if we're going to kind of keep moving forward and end up in a situation where we don't just turn back all of the progress we've made, um, it's going to take a lot of energy and is going to take a very um, concerted effort to hear from all of those different people as to why it matters that they can access this data. Um, I think if we do all of those things, we're not going to wind the clock back, but we're probably going to end up in some kind of compromise situation where people are probably, broadly speaking, getting what they want. And I think that comes to you from the legal profession. I mean, the nature of compromise is that neither party gets exactly what they want. I think what worries me a little bit is that there are law firms, there's one in the UK in particular that's been pushing this very, very hard for years now, um, need to sort of yeah, step up. Yeah, we had the, the same in uh, Norway, someone who went out in the newspaper and was like celebrating that this ruling came into effect, that it was like a really good thing uh, for their clients yeah. to preserve their privacy. And it was. And <clears throat> in the case of this particular law firm, they have a number of clients for whom this is hugely beneficial and they're very energetic about investing their own time and money in fighting this and have been doing so for years. But um, yeah, compromise means no one gets what they want. Um, I, I don't think we're going to see some of the more activist law firms um, taking a step back and engaging in a constructive way in this conversation. That's not how any of this works, but we do need the commission and everybody else to take a critical view as to why those law firms are taking the positions they do um, and try and make sure that there's a um, diversity of voices in the room um, 
that can make the case for why uh, access to this information really helps their business, helps their um, investigations, um, and ultimately um, makes our financial system have a greater degree of integrity, which I think is the point. But um, on that, a lot of countries have taken down their UBO registers waiting for, you know, okay, what is the precedent for this law? But some countries keep keep it up. And here in Norway, you know, we have for the first time a budget for developing our UBO register for next year. But, you know, at the same time, uh, we do have full transparency on ownership and so forth. So, I mean, it looks like some countries will then put, you know, their national law above the EU ruling and keep this up. Do you think that w- is one way forward? That's Yeah, I think it is. And I think <clears throat> Slovakia is a really interesting case of this. Slovakia has had a public beneficial ownership register for entities receiving more than 100,000 euros since before AMLD5. Um, that was introduced in Slovakia because there was a huge public procurement scandal and massive, I think, unprecedentedly large protests around that in Slovakia. So they introduced a public register of ultimate ownership relating to entities receiving 100,000 or more, mostly through public procurement. That is legislated for, it's got nothing to do with the anti-money laundering directive, it's got nothing to do with anti-money laundering. This is about integrity uh, in public spending. That is going to remain unaffected, or rather, I cannot see how it will be affected by this. And also, if we're in a situation where a member state has taken steps to improve its integrity in public procurement and responding to its own population demanding that, it would seem odd that a ruling around the AMLD directive should take that down. So Slovakia are keeping that up. We as an organization for a very long time have been advising governments and we don't really work with governments in the EU per se, we work with them globally, we've been advising governments for a really long time to to root all of this reform and to root public access in company law, in uh, law relating to the administration of businesses. That allows you to more logically have a much broader range of data protection purposes or purposes for for, uh, publishing this data. So um, I think that member states can think about taking those approaches if they want to maintain public access. Um, because ultimately, if we look at the relatively narrow bounds of this judgment, it's about whether or not it's proportional to publish this data to tackle money laundering and counter-terrorist financing. Yeah, so if you do if you legislation re- outside of that related to corruption or public procurement or yeah. these things, then you can then you can circumvent it's a, it. It's a, different pro- it's a different proportionality test. It's yeah. a different set of purposes. So again, back to you know people raising their voices and uh, making their stance heard on this so that each a member state or a national, each country take the necessary legal steps to implement something that circumvent this ruling. That is also one way forward. I think I think potentially it is. I mean, look, I I am not a I'm not an EU lawyer. Um, I don't know what the the long term um, approach could be on all of this. And you know, this ruling sets an interesting precedent around how we treat privacy uh, within the EU. So I don't know ultimately if there are mechanisms to get around all of this. What I do know is that we have we have member states who are not taking the data down. We have member states that have access to beneficial ownership already that is not rooted in the fifth anti-money laundering directive. So they provide us with our those edge cases that kind of give us a, a sense that there are ways around all of this. Mm. Circumvention probably isn't the right word, but people are doing yeah, things Yeah, not circumvention. Yeah, that's, uh... let's, let's keep going with all of this. 
and I've said this to countries around the world, if I've said this to countries around the world since the judgment landed, if it was the case that every member state had instantaneously taken their register down, then you would probably reach the conclusion that there is a, uh, this is a clear cut case. The court has ruled, everyone's taken the data down, dead straightforward. That is not the case. Therefore, you should logically kind of sort of conclude that there is space to work in and around this. There are different ways of publishing this data. Mm. So I think we need to kind of keep that um, keep that sort of fact quite close to our, um, our hearts in all of this, because um, there hasn't been a uniform single response from member states and there won't be. Um, so there is space to work. Yeah, uh, I see time is running out but i had one uh, one question is since you guys work globally and not just in the eu eu what are some of the the countries we should give a shout out to who has really progressed in being transparent uh, with ownership and beneficial owners ownership like where where are the leading stars outside of the eu um <clears throat> uh so um what where we see the most progress on this issue is in africa Uh, West Africa, um, Sub-Saharan Africa in general, um, really. There are countries where it is quite clear that revealing who ultimately owns companies is absolutely what the step they need to take to make sure that government officials, corrupt government officials can stop moving money out of the country, particularly where you have a lot of natural resources. So Nigeria has just come online with its beneficial ownership register. They are publishing all of their data according to our standard. It's a big, lovely JSON file, which we can start to ingest. And we've been doing this analysis over the last couple of days as we started to get oh, uh, wow. the first bits of data. So we're going to be ingesting that soon uh, when we can get their, uh, their API up and running in the coming weeks. So Nigeria has been doing this for years. And is that It's, someone uh, everyone can get access to or...? Is um, it? It will be. Yeah. Oh wow, in, that's in, interesting. In coming, it, it's already there publicly if you via web search. Now we're getting all of the data structured. Um, it's fantastic. Um, you know, one of the largest, second largest, I think, economies uh, in Africa. This is a really, really big deal. Um, if we look across that region, Ghana's been doing great work on this since 2016. Zambia is. Uh, Kenya is doing fantastic work on beneficial ownership reform, particularly related to public procurement, so that when you're assessing all the different bids that come in, you can see if um, fundamentally all of these bids are from companies owned by the same person. So this looks for bid rigging and collusion, which is um, a problem all over the world. So there are these major bright spots in all of this where countries are driving this forward because they know it's the reform they have to get right to start to address a whole bunch of other issues, whether it's tax evasion, whether it's grand corruption, whether it's petty corruption, uh, money laundering, they know this is something um, that they need to do and they are pushing ahead with it. If we oh, I'm really happy to hear because I started the episode with feeling very gloomy and down and be like, oh, this is such a step back, but yeah. now I actually felt more upbeat and okay, there are other countries driving this forward now. Um, Liberia. Liberia is a country that's that's suffered a great deal over the last 50 years. Um, probably by the end of this month, maybe early January, um, we've been working with them to design new legislation on this. That will be signed into uh, in, into into force probably by the oh, end of March. That's so inspiring year. to hear. It's yeah. really inspiring they're to gonna, hear. They're going to start collecting this data. It's going to be structured. It's going to get published. 
Um, if we look to Asia, Mongolia is doing good work on this. Indonesia has got public data. It needs work, but it's getting out there. The Philippines is doing good work on this. Australia and New Zealand have committed to doing public registers. Australia and New Zealand give, um, Australia gives directors a unique lifelong ID so that you can trace all of them back through every single thing they've ever been a director of. And New Zealand's going to take that technology and apply it to beneficial owners, which is an absolute godsend to investigators. One unique ID, mm. one person through all of the data. Um, Canada's going to do the same. There are huge amounts of things going on. So, you know, if you, if you take the 27 member states of the EU, um, it's looking less good there, as hasn't having been the front runner. But for the other 160 countries around the world or whatever it is, there's a good number of them that are pushing forward and doing their own things. They're innovating around how we verify. They're innovating around who gets to use the data internally. There's a load of really good stuff happening. So, then it makes it yeah. just so much more infamtable. Like, why has the EU gone forward with this ruling? Now, hearing everything you say now, I just it's just so hard to understand. It's just so the hard EU to understand. The EU is going to be left behind on this issue. And it's a real problem because, you know, from a corruption perspective, from a money laundering perspective, uh, it is frankly lower income countries that suffer and higher income countries in Europe that gain from all of this because it's where the money flows. Um, it is unconscionable that given that's the case, it is countries outside of the EU that are driving forward with transparency on this and the reform and the EU is taking a step backwards. Uh, okay, that's, um, well, there's hope in the... There is masses and masses of hope. What this will mean is that the interesting, innovative, new, cool things that are happening are not going to be happening in the EU as we restrict access and we restrict the ability of companies like yours. We restrict the ability of the fintech and regtech sector to get access to this, which is what it means. I mean, not giving, giving general access to this means a massive constriction in innovation within EU member states. The rest of the world will pick up and run with that because they'll have the data to innovate with and um, good for them. Yeah. I see time is really running out now, so we will have to uh, set a stop. I Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tom. I've learned a lot and super inter interesting topic to discuss with someone as knowledgeable as you. So thank you. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's never been more important to have a trustworthy, global view of your customers and their business relationships with a technology setup that can operationalize the evolving changes at 100 times the speed. Therefore, we just launched Rise Global, a powerful extension to our KYC intelligence system that allows your first-line teams to fetch your customers' entire global network, including roles, UBOs and ownership structures, with the click of a button. You can also perform more accurate PEPs and sanction screening across the entire network and continuously monitor them for changes. And finally, you can perform counterparty screening and entity creation, delivering a complete solution with total oversight. You can check out our new interactive demo of Strice Global at strice.ai today. <laughs>